I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on Encountering Silence, we are happy to welcome Dr. Leah Weiss. Dr. Leah Weiss is the author behind the popular book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind, that focuses on compassion and purpose at work. She has been quoted and used as an expert on corporate culture development in numerous places, including CNBC, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, and Forbes, in addition to writing columns for Inc., Harvard Business Review, and Psychology Today. Dr. Weiss also teaches at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Compassion Institute, as well as running her own coaching and consulting business. Welcome to the podcast, Leah. Could you briefly state before we start, how do you view silence? What is silence to you? What does it mean to you? For me, I think of silence in two ways. I think of it as the literal having periods in the day intermittently, and sometimes they're long and sometimes they're not, of having the literal quiet. But I also think of it as an inner silence that we can access or not, and and that's the world around us can be noisy, but if we have this ability to touch in with our own clarity and mental spaciousness, if you will, that's another way to access silence. And you can do that, you know, no matter how loud it is on the city street. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. Leah, your your book, uh, the title of your book is How We Work. And it's interesting. This morning, uh, I was texting Cassidy and Kevin in advance of getting online with you, and I just texted the phrase, silence at work. And as soon as I texted it, I realized that there was a pun there and that you could even read that those three simple words on multiple levels. So I just would love to kind of bring this conversation to to the workplace. You've written about the workplace, mindfulness in the workplace. Would you be willing to kind of build on what you just said, your understanding of, of silence's place in the workplace? I love this uh, silence at work. I'm going to have to make a sign uh, and put it on my door when I'm working from home in particular. Um, that's great. So I think, you know, that Silence is an underexploited commodity in the workplace. And I'm being kind of silly with this, but I think what happens is we are at an all-time low in workplace engagement. People are distracted. Companies are trying to figure out what to do 
to create environments, you know, going back and forth between open floor plans and closed floor plans, or if you're in healthcare and you're working in an environment um, that's not, you know, an office suite, what does it mean to meet employee demands for places that are quiet that they can step into between patients and take a break from the constant onslaught? And I think this comes back to, you know, what we were talking about a minute ago, that there's this need for a certain amount of external silence, but it really comes back to people being inundated um, with demands, with distractions, with noise, and it becomes really difficult for us to make decisions about where our attention goes. And so many of us have the experience of, you know, looking up at lunchtime and where did the morning go or the end of a long work day and Mm -hmm. the priorities didn't happen and we didn't choose to waste our time. So, you know, there's so many different things to say about that in terms of cultivating mindfulness and the, the, ability to bring our attention where we want it to be. And then there's all kinds of hacks we can be using. You know, I'm just in the process myself. I'm like so done with working on a computer all the time and really trying to go back to paper and whiteboards and more physical forms of expressing and capturing ideas and communicating and walking meetings and all of these things. And I'm not alone in this. I think a lot of organizations and people are are on this mode now, I think having seen what it means to work on devices that are set up to capture our attention in ways that are not necessarily the most leveraged for what we're aiming to do. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And it- I love the, the subtitle of your book, How We Work, uh, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. I just love that. And I, I love also in the book how you talk about you just by necessity, we bring both our hearts and our minds to everything we do. And you talk a lot about how feelings matter, how we feel about our work matters, you know, both to ourselves and the workplace. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just how our society underestimates our feelings and underestimates how we feel about our work and how that matters. And and of course we live in a society that faces so much burnout. And I'm wondering if honing in on, on both our feelings and that, that center, that centeredness in ourselves, how that, how are we missing the mark that that's so important? Yes. I think that understanding the humanity of um, workers and making this something that's front of mind in the context of work is a crucial shift that a lot of companies are starting to really execute on now. And I think what they're seeing as they start to make efforts to humanize the workplace, that people become more engaged. They give more of themselves to their work. The work product is better. I think there's a understanding now that just increasing the numbers of hours worked is is not the same thing as increasing the quality of the output that we create Mm. as individuals and teams. And, you know, using the metaphor like elite athletes rest is a crucial part of, of training. And, you know, companies can ask of their employees to be in a sprint for a period of time, but 
it's not sustainable. It impacts our health in very serious ways and leads to, as, as you're pointing out, this kind of burnout. And I think there's different ways that burnout happens. Some of it is, you know, the running around, running amok, long hours, lack of self-care. And then sometimes it's more the um, being stuck in um, empathetic uh, overload, being in for people who are professional caregivers or, or touching real pain and mirroring that pain in their own physiology, they can't sustain that over time. So in places like healthcare, you know, we're in this epidemic of burnout that is so severe that, you know, it translates to astronomical physician suicide rates where as many, a whole equivalent to an entire medical school class of physicians each year in this country dies by suicide. And it's a very real problem. There's like um, over a million of us patients are touched by this. If you look at the networks of how many people, you know, and that's, that's huge. So I think we're in a time now where organizations like healthcare are taking this as a very real problem that needs to be addressed. And, and I think we understand more about the downsides of what stress does to our body when we live in it chronically. And, you know, to your point, I completely agree with the link you're making between feelings and our ability to process feelings as whole humans in the context of work. And whether we can do that effectively as individuals and groups or not has everything to do with where the burnout problem goes. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. A few weeks ago, we had a, a guest who came on to talk about corporate wellness and and spoke in similar language of you about walking meetings, performance, and acting like athletes, etc. And it's an interesting uh, connection that it's taken us this long to get to that place to realize that work is performance, and performance is not just activity, but is as Cassidy's point here is. The, and your point of your book, it's the whole person. So you're going to bring in emotional and everything. So I, I, this topic is, is extremely fascinating to me. Me too. And I think, you know, for me, I'm very interested in, you know, both the hacks version of what can we do behaviorally to make it better. But also I think that there are some fundamental trainings and retrainings mm. that, we can use in in order to be able to put to understand how feelings work, how emotions work, so that we can be healthier and more effective. And you know, people who can process emotions well are so much better to be around, right? Like we've all had the experience of a friend or a loved one who is spending their days being frustrated at work and it doesn't end there. They come home and the unhappiness, you know, comes with them. And it's, it's really, it's a human issue that, that matters. And I think the point that is lost on a lot of people is that we can do some very basic things to get better at handling these emotions. And that really is a lot of what I'm trying to talk about in this book about like, what do we know from, research and how do we, what does that mean when we bring it together with practice and practicality 
of, you know, how do we actually go about changing our mindset about a really irritating coworker who's driving us nuts and we spend more time with them than our family. Like, how do we not become a crazy person and use this as a way to become <laughs> a more thoughtful, you know, compassionate, better version of ourselves, right? Because we could go either way there. <laughs> right, right. Now, Leah, I, you and I have some background. We knew each other in grad school. And, and so I'm kind of curious, hearing where you are now and knowing you when I first met you and what you were studying and what you were doing, I was wonder if you could give a little bit of a history, kind of your history with silence, a little bit of how did you get here? How did you get to the place mm -hmm. where this is interesting for you that you want to talk about these kinds of questions? Because I know uh, you, you and I met, we were studying theology to, together on some level. And so I'm kind of curious mm -hmm. as to that, that journey. I think that's a fascinating journey of you with silence and what that looks like for you personally. <laughs> Just chuckling and remembering both of us uh, back in the day in grad school. Was, everything was so urgent, too. We had to get to the bottom of it. Right, um, right. Uh, <laughs> so when I was doing grad school, as you know, Kevin, I was in and out of long meditation retreats. So I would typically in the mm -hmm. fall take the semester off and do like a hundred day meditation retreat and then come back in the spring. Right. Um, wow. And then one of the years I took the whole year off and did like the hundred day retreat, then a six month retreat, then went back into another hundred day retreat. Right. So, right. you know, for me, what the way I kind of framed it at the time was going, trying to really un go through the traditional Tibetan Buddhist training curriculum in the context of retreat. And then when I was not in retreat, asking a lot of questions about uh, academically, how do we use these concepts and practices? Um, how can we adapt them for people who need them? I did a lot of work with trauma and continue to do, I mean, I think about trauma differently now. I think it's actually much more widely applicable, but back in grad school, I was focused on people like who are refugees and you know, survivors of um, intensive experiences with acute trauma. Right. And then, you know, fast forward some years and I started having kids. And I now have three kids, seven, five, and three. And I think for me, the way I think about and teach this work is really influenced by the transition between a life of a lot of retreat, a lot of external silence to a life of no retreat <laughs> and very minimal <laughs> external silence. And so for me, like that humility, but also the opportunity of, of that, like seeing how hard it is, but when it's possible, what a huge difference it makes and, and bringing that together with the students that I would teach at the business school you know, who are very busy, often frantic, you know, there's a lot going on externally in their lives, but they value so much the possibility of things like mindfulness and compassion and purpose. So the, the challenge mm -hmm. to me became a design challenge of like reclaiming things from the Buddhist tradition that I had been trained in that speak to life off the cushion when there's not external silence cross-referencing, you know, the research we have about behavior change and mindset 
and a lot of, you know, experimentation and teaching methods and in trying to do them myself. And that's where the the term humbling comes in because it is humbling. It's not, you know, we're all, I think it changed my fundamental thinking from like, you know, a kind of youthful idea of done it to enlightenment to a more kind of an idea of being very comfortable with being a work in progress. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And in all your, your, your work, both personally and professionally in dealing with these things, I wonder what surprised you the most about silence. And and I'm wondering actually if you have a different answer for your personal life versus your professional life, or maybe that's the same answer. I think one of the surprises for me is, you know, for many years, I thought more was better of silence and, of you know, formal practices and, you know, getting mm. deeply still and really I, having access to a silence internally. I suppose that's um, become a, a little more difficult with three small children, of course. Well, it's had, yeah, it changed my thinking a good deal mm-hmm. that now the surprise is that a minute like that minute after the babies all fall asleep and I sit mm. down, yeah. you know, or yeah. the, that, that minute of silence can be powerful and sometimes as are more powerful than a week of silence in the context of, you know, a meditation retreat. And I think it also depends so much. Like I can't access the same kind of, there's mental states that are very difficult to access without external silence, but the really mm-hmm. meaningful knowingness that comes in silence and recognizing ourself and the world and what matters, all of those kinds of things, I think can, the surprise to me is that that, that can be profoundly possible in chaos and noise. And, you know, that's why I wanted in my, the title of my book to have this daily grind piece, because I think we need to look at the daily grind. And if we can't do it there, we can't do it anywhere. Mm. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence. Leah, listening to you talk about kind of the relationship between silence and the workplace, you've you've touched on something that that I have pondered a lot. Now, I I come out of the Catholic contemplative tradition. I'm the lay associate of a Trappist monastery. But I think there are are some parallels between Catholic contemplation and, and the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But one of the things that concerned about when I hear kind of the rhetoric of mindfulness in our culture today, is that there seems to be kind of this narrative of instrumentality. And and what I mean by that is it's always about, you know, practice mindfulness and you'll be more effective at work. Practice mindfulness and your business will become more profitable. 
and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and I, I, I just always twitch a little. <laughs> isn't, I isn't that like what they call Mick mindfulness kind of thing? Well, I don't know, you know, maybe, but, but, you know, and, and I, I, I mean, I, I'm a corporate refugee. I understand that, that there's a level on which in the corporate world that, that last line on the PL is everything. So, you know, so, so, so I understand that. So, so I guess my question to you, Leah, is for those of us who see silence as, as its own good, who see the, you know, the, the practice of silence as its own good, how do we bring that narrative into corporate America to, you know, mm. to, to say, you know, uh, mindfulness, yes, mindfulness can help a business be more competitive. I agree. But mindfulness, we need mindfulness because we need mindfulness. How do, how do we, how do we open up that conversation? Mm. Yeah, I think you're raising a lot of important questions. You know, one thing to say, I also, I get concerned when these practices are overly reduced to, you know, small slivers of the impact they can provide. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, I also, this is another change that's really happened in my teaching over the years. I, I also really have more humility about the idea that someone can start a practice for a reason like chronic pain. And when they start Mm. doing the practice over time, they find that there wasn't actually that chronic pain was also related to emotional pain and Mm. spiritual pain. And so I think for me, having seen that over and over and over again, I'm much less likely to come in from the perspective of saying it's we have, of insisting that things always need to be framed in terms of like their highest possible value proposition, mm-hmm. let's say. Mm, interesting. But I also am allergic, you know, when things get overly reductionistic, I don't want anything to do with them. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't speak to me for the same reasons. Like I'm not interested in a lot of these sort of like productivity guru type of program creations. It's just like, I'm not there it's not the way I see the world. So I think for me that when I think in terms of pedagogy, what I try to do is, and I make this transparent with people I'm working with, it's like there we are rich and complex creatures. And we have, you know, minds that want to understand the science about like how the practices work on us. We have questions that keep us up in the night about either our finances or our existential reality. Like we have so many different concerns and drivers. And so when I teach and frame the content, what I try to do is give space for all of that and, and touch on all of that. So giving like, yeah, I think we need research about if we're going to say that organizations should invest in mindfulness, I don't think it makes sense to say that if we don't have a clear picture about what the return on investment looks like in their key performance metrics, Mm -hmm. right? 
otherwise it's a great thing to do, but why should the organization, why should that happen during work time? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of great things to do Mm -hmm. that don't happen during work time. So Mm -hmm. I think if we're making the argument that it should happen, it needs to tie in. I think otherwise there's a whole category of things that are important and good that we don't demand of our workplaces to give us time or financial support for during work hours. So I think we, I think like we're in a little bit of a funny time being so early in this, I mean, early and not early, but basically early in this process of trying to figure out what are all these practices at work that, you know, what, what is the appropriate, I just finished writing a case for the Stanford and Harvard database about mindfulness in a few different organizations. And this is one of the things I really get into, like, you know, what are the metrics people are using? Why are they using them? What are the criteria they're evaluating um, practices that they're choosing to implement based on um, who's teaching them, right? Because there's a wildly um, divergent set of realities out there. It's the Mm -hmm. wild last in terms of highly qualified, really thoughtful programs, and then not. Right. Um, And yeah, so I think... I think, and then also the unintended consequences, because the thing that I also feel concerned about is um, I don't want people to feel like their heart and minds are being invaded in the workplace. Like there's a lot of of ethical issues there that if you're working in a workplace, it doesn't mean you want to give license to your employer to tell you how to think, right? So a lot of this stuff, can be used or misused depending on the goal of the employer and implementing it. Just to give a, an example, like, you know, is the mindfulness training to improve the well-being of the employee or is the mindfulness training to increase their resilience in the face of toxic circumstances? In which case, that's very different. So I don't know. I, I appreciate right. your question because to me, it gets to the heart of a lot of complexity and a lot of things that I do think about and have strong perspectives on. And, you know, I, for one, am not interested in working in organizations to give trainings and like hacks to make employees tolerate awful conditions if the organization isn't willing to look at the, and make their best faith efforts to simultaneously be improving the external condition. Right. But there's lots of people who will be out there claiming all sorts of absurd stuff about mindfulness as a silver bullet. Mm-hmm. And if you teach people mm-hmm. to meditate, all problems will be solved. I, I don't believe that. <laughs> no, none of us on this podcast believe that. <laughs> yeah, that, that gets into what we call toxic silence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, now that's such a great answer, Leah, because we we hover around this and I'm glad that answer had goes in so many directions and we could probably unpack that for days. And I'm not sure we could do justice to your answer, but I'm on that point that Carl just raised this idea of toxic silence. And you've already talked about the idea of working with trauma. And I know that you, uh, I saw the other day that you were on CNBC talking about the rescue mission with uh, the meditation that was done by the, the divers and the, and the kids and the coach. And, and so I know you understand kind of trauma and everything. And now this issue for me about toxic silence and populations that have been silenced, uh, women specifically, we could talk about in the workplace, but in in other places, 
And I know that you do some work in that area as well. And I'm curious as to hear about uh, what you think, uh, to talk a little bit about toxic silence, what you've learned about basically the, the this part of silence, this shadow side, this dark side of silence. I'm so glad that you're asking this, you know, not even just of me, but that this is a, a central point of inquiry that the three of you have in this. Yes, definitely. This work you're doing, it's so important. And I'm so, yeah, I'm, I'm just really touched to hear that you're taking it seriously. Um, it's interesting. I think, you know, for me, a lot of what needs to happen, you know, whether you want to frame it in, in for people who have been silenced, and I'll speak to gender because that's my first, you know, that's where I'm mm-hmm. location wise, uh, feel most comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that mindfulness First, like starting with this understanding of what are all the aspects of our experience that are in play, the frustration, the anger, the guilt about being frustrated and angry, the, you know, just the million things, right, that we think and feel. I think that that actual positive silence becomes a place to start to see that and have community around that. I think community is really important and conversation. So silence with connection, you know, maybe it's connected versions of silence where we're silent together, but then we can also speak about our experiences becomes so important. It normalizes reactions that so many of us have that we're, because we're pushing those reactions away, it just uh, serves to make them stronger. Like the the biggest insight we know in terms of the emotion regulation research is that suppression is your worst plan, right? Anything that's like stuffing down a strong feeling is going to make that feeling stronger, is mm-hmm. going to make sure that you have some sort of a, you know, you're like a balloon that's going to, you can be poked and poked and eventually you're going to pop and mm-hmm. probably it's not going to be the time you want it to be. So finding alternate skills to suppression, mm-hmm. um, and I think this silence and this seeing and this normalizing and then the ability to express and reframe and build skills to speak up and out and, you know, I, but I really, I see a, a profound importance of creating an opportunity for people who have been harmed by by aggressive, violent silence. Mm -hmm. And I think also the containers that people need can be different, right? Like I I started, one of the reasons I became interested early on in trauma and mindfulness was I was seeing this pattern of so many people who had come on retreat who were trauma survivors that were going to retreat because they wanted to have silence and healing But the formats and the structures that were there were not necessarily helpful. They could, you know, be counterproductive if people Mm. have, Mm -hmm. you know, post-traumatic stress is an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the like unstructured silence um, and having people who aren't trained in how to recognize and support trauma survivors um, mm-hmm. All of that can make symptoms worse. Right. Um, so that that really drove me to become interested in like, okay, so what does it mean to create an environment 
where we can skillfully build positive silence along with connection and support and healing mm-hmm. um, opportunities for trauma survivors. And, you know, and I touched on this earlier, but it turns out that not all of us are survivors of intense trauma, but all of us have traumas in our lives Correct. in places where there's pain that we don't want to touch, um, that we that's that hurts and we need to have ways to deal with. Um, so I think the the interesting thing has been, you know, some of the techniques I learned to work with refugees, you know, are actually the go-to things that I use with my high performing MBA students at Stanford. Hmm. Um, because we're not actually that different in a lot of ways. Right. Right. Mm, yeah. With my background and in, in being a therapist and then, also having read Thomas Merton, which led me on this pilgrimage to all these Trappist monasteries in the United States, I remember a monk telling me before I left, you know, make sure you have a, a spiritual director um, before you go, before you embark on this journey into into silence. And I'm curious your thoughts on the importance of that sense of having a, a kind of guide or a person you touch base with as people begin to engage with silence in their own lives, because you know, like you say, it often touches touches close to that trauma, um, no matter how you go into it. Yes, and I think we need to have understanding of how to respond when we meet that suffering. And I think, mm. like, we need that both internally to be able to engage with the pain. And then we need that ability to talk to other people about it, whether that's a guide or a teacher. And I think no matter what, we need community around it, like other people who are, you know, walking with similar types of struggles. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I'm increasingly feeling like just having a teacher or director is not enough. We really do need the community peace around Mm. it and someone who's in process in the same way that we can relate to Mm. with the challenges and also the, you know, the very real breakthroughs that we have, even the the smallest ones, having people we can share that with. Right. And sometimes the breakthroughs, you know, there's, there's not words for them, but you can still, I think, share that in community in a, in a unique way. Yeah. That's so important. That's beautiful. Thank you. Mm. So, Leah, something we ask all of our conversation partners here on the podcast, do you have a particular silence hero? Someone could be living, could be dead, someone famous, someone obscure, who for you has really kind of embodied or exemplified a healthy relationship with silence? One of my mentors, Pat Kristen, who I've written about in my book, I love that she has four kids and a lot of very practical practices in her extremely busy work life. And so she's someone who over the years, as I'm kind of rejiggering what my approach to silence can look like, (laughs) Mm. I I talk to her about it. It's a regular, you know, touch point along with other kinds of like career and life mentorship. So yeah, I I think she's been immensely helpful. That's great. Uh, another question that we often try to ask too is, is there some, do you have a favorite poem or book or work of art or something that speaks to you about silence that you either 
sometimes people quote a, a poem that they have that, the, you know, you said something like, put this outside your door, like silence at work, the pun before. Is there some kind of either quote or poem or something along those lines that speaks to your heart that kind of comes back to you about silence? There's a picture, and I'm actually looking at it right now, that my five-year-old made last year. Um, and it's a, a painting that's got this red figure, and it was like one of these gloppy paint things that he folded it in half so it makes the mirror mm. image, and then he calls it Buddha. Oh, Lord, um, oh. that's wonderful. And yeah, so I love that because I feel like the reflection piece of it and the ability mm. to see ourselves, so I keep that um, by my desk, and it's definitely like a touch point for me. Oh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> if we have, if we have your permission, we would love to put it on our uh, website where we ha will have show notes for this particular episode. Absolutely, Caleb will Wonder. be delighted. we'll be sure to give him credit. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he will get artist credit. That is for sure. Well, I know our time is up. Is does Cassie? Did you have any last minute things that you want to ask or? No, thank you so much, Leah, for joining us and um, just exploring all these different aspects with us. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Yeah. Definitely. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun to talk to all of you, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you all. Have a great day. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.